this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So when's the last time you read a book on selling your company? My guess is you've never read a book on selling your company. Why bother when the only books out there read like textbooks filled with acronyms and terms you've never heard of written by people who make it their job to make themselves look and sound smarter than you? Why bother? Well, the art of selling your business tries to do exactly the opposite. It features the stories of the founders I've listened to for the podcast. I've taken their best practices, their secret hacks, and bundled them into a storytelling format so that you can take away the key lessons, the action plan, the the field guide without sifting through the boring textbook that is most books on the topic of selling your company. You can get it at builttosell.com slash selling. Welcome to Built to Sell Radio, the Intel edition. I love this edition because it's uh, it's a chance, first of all, to interact with you live and answer your questions that you have coming in over the transom. It's also a chance for me to engage with my good friend, Dr. Jay. So Dr. Jerry Weiss is um, going to lead us through this discussion of four great guests that we had had in the last month. And the objective is really to tease out what are the kind of common themes, what are the transferable lessons. So Jeremy, take it away. I'm excited. I always get excited with Built to Sell Intel, Jim, because we get to hear your advice. We get to hear (laughs) you overlay your thoughts because you ask such good questions, but it's them talking most of the time. So we get to hear, you know, your expertise overlaid on this. And if you haven't heard, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard of John Warlow, he's the founder of Value Builder System, practice management software that helps business advisors automate their processes to win and keep the best clients. And they have several diagnostic tools, including the Value Builder Score, which is offered on you know, by a global network of their certified value builder advisors and those businesses that achieve a value. So I encourage everyone, go fill it out, get your score, you know, because the businesses that achieve a value builder score of 90 or greater are worth double the average performing business. And if you haven't seen his books, you know, his best-selling book, Built to Sell, I've said it over and over again. I've listened to it, John, multiple times. I know other people have as well. So that check that out. That makes you man. I, we, I am a slow learner. Yeah. Every time I listen to it, Usually I get it just something takes the one pass through. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, the automatic customer creating a subscription business in any industry and the art of selling your business, which is the winning strategies and secret hacks for exiting at the top. And so we have several amazing interviews uh, from the past month. Jody Cook, and we'll start with Jody Cook. And she started a social media agency, JC Social Media. And over the nine years, she built the business up to 16 employees. She decided to sell at the end of 2020 and thought that her company could be worth, you know, five to seven times EBITDA. And she first got an offer for five times um, and with approximately 20% of the proceeds tied up in three year earnout. But she did not want an earnout. This was interesting. And you pointed this out that it's very rare 
for a service-based business to just go see ya later. So I would love to start with Jody and hear about what you liked about her interview. Fantastic entrepreneur. What a wonderful kind of story. You know, it started out very similar to the way I think a lot of small businesses start up, effectively selling her time. She had an expertise in social media, so she was really just sort of selling her time in the in the early days, but then clearly kind of ran out of hours in the day and wanted to build a company beyond just her. And she, she built this business. In, in the beginning, I think it was a little bit frenetic for her, but she early on started to document her processes. And I think that was the big aha for me in this interview. She went to such a crazy extent of really documenting her processes. And, and even still, she went to the market and you know the, the first acquirer that she came to, they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll buy it. And as you said in your introduction, you know, 20% in an earnout. And she's like, I'm not sure if you heard me right. <laughs> I'm not doing an earnout. And again, for most marketing services companies, like that's a non-starter. They're gonna have to do an earnout, right? The objective, I think, for marketing services, and even all kind of professional services, is is to minimize the length and impact of the earnout. But almost everybody's gonna have to do some form of earnout in a service company. But she was able to get out two weeks after selling. And I think I asked her sort of like, how did you do that? And she said it was the processes. It was having everything documented, me not being in the business really at all anymore. And so she was successful in making that case. You know, there's a couple things. And by the way, anyone has questions, the beauty of showing up live on the webinar, you can ask questions. And so I see some, we're gonna take, after each interview, we're gonna take a few questions. So just put them in the chat and we'll, Lisa, we'll get to that. an interview question. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna get to your question, Lisa, in a second. Um, so John, I want to hear about, you know, you have these different drivers, you have subscription models, which you talk about in the different books. And what did you feel for this business was, you know, some drivers like strengths and weaknesses? For sure. So, I mean, Jody had a great hub and spoke score. So hub and spoke is the dependency the company has on its owner. The higher the score means the business is less dependent on the owner. So in, in Jody's case, she had structured it so that it was not dependent on her. Therefore, she got a high hub and spoke score. So things she did around that is she, she kind of merchandised her VPs uh, in and let them go on the media interviews. So when a radio station called up and said, hey, we'd like to talk to Jody about, you know, what, how to use social media effectively. She's like, hey, love to do the interview, but my, you know, my colleague Bob is is the is the real go-to expert on that. So why don't you interview Bob? So she set them up as experts. She brought in a general manager, someone to run the company day to day, and then of course she documented her standard operating procedures like to the nth degree. And so I think uh, that was probably the area that she scored the highest would would have been hub and spoke, and just all the things she did to make it make it not dependent on her. What about uh, from a subscription model perspective? What was present or not present that you saw? Yeah, we I didn't see as much in the area of recurring revenue. I mean, social media by its nature can often lend itself to a recurring revenue model because you you know you have to keep active on your social platform. So oftentimes clients will sign up for a regular sort of monthly bill if you're going to manage a certain set of platforms. Going back to last month, we interviewed Dave and Carrie Kirpin, and they actually nailed this right. They they created their token or their content uh, uh, content system. I can't remember exactly the term they used 
used, but effectively they sold tokens instead of time. And the tokens were good for a tweet or a blog post, 10 tokens for a blog post, 100 tokens for a video. And they got completely out of selling time because they put their subscription to these tokens on annual you know, plans. Uh, so I think they really nailed it here. In, in Jody's case, I think she had some recurring revenue, but, but, but maybe following what Dave and Carrie did around the tokens would have been a cool idea for her to explore. So I want to take some questions here. Um, Lisa, I'm going to get to your question in a second. There's another question is you asked something during the interview, which I thought was interesting, John, and this person asked a question on that, which is how do you systemize everything and then not feel empty? So what's some of the next roles that you've seen founders take on that move their company forward? You know, cause you asked this to her, go, you know, uh, now that you systemize everything, do you feel like, you don't have the same purpose or that you're not meddling in other things. What have you seen the next roles people take on in the business after they have stepped away that has helped move their company forward? They're not kind of hindering their team and meddling. Yeah, I think it's taking on the role of selling your company. And I don't necessarily mean proactively negotiating with acquirers. I do mean, though, becoming the person who is really driving the value of the company, in particular, what partnerships you're forging, what potential acquirers you're talking to. I remember I got uh, a chance to to go to something called the Birthing of Giants years ago, which is, uh, which is a program that MIT at the time was on the campus of MIT, since been renamed the Entrepreneurial Master's Program. But it was a great program, three-year program, and, and we heard from amazing list of speakers. One of the guys that came in and, and spoke had just sold this company, and he said, look how many of you are involved in selling your product or service and we all like you know like 12 year old school children kind of raised our hands very proud of the fact that we were involved in selling our services and products and 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 he immediately chastised us and said look you, you've got all the right skills <laughs> Trick question. you're selling yeah you're selling the wrong product and we're like come again and he's like yeah you've got all the right skills you're good at influencing you're good at marketing you're good at communicating what you're not good at is what to sell you're selling your product what you should be selling is your company. Mm. And I've always remembered that. It goes back 20 years ago now. But my takeaway was that I needed to do a much better job of, of really thinking about my role as the founder, as this primary shareholder, frankly, of, of building the value negotiating and discussing creating relationships with the potential acquirers. So I think, you know, for Jody, I think uh, that you know, that she did that more naturally, again, because she had more time, because she had focused on getting all of the processes into other people's hands. She just carved out time to, to have some of those discussions. And so I think, I think that was one. The other thing that really resonated, uh, resonated with me, Jeremy, I, I don't know if you remember this line. Um, I, I asked her like, gosh, like, documenting your processes and standing operating procedures. I mean, that sounds like torture for, you know, a young entrepreneur. I mean, she, Jody's like a young, vibrant person. Like she doesn't seem like the kind of person that would like to sit there and like dot every I, cross every T and create all these like boring processes. And I said, like, that sounds like torture to me to, to sit there and, and carve out three months to create your processes. And, and she said, yeah, but think about it this way. If you're going to go to jail, would you rather be in jail for three months or three years? Yeah. And she went on to say, yeah, it was, it sucked creating my processes. I like, it was horrible, but I was committed not to having an earnout. 
right? And an earnout for her, because she's a very independent woman, would be like three years in hell, right? Three years in jail. And so she took her medicine up front and she said, you know, I'd rather just do the work up front, get it all documented, and then not have to do the earnout. And I thought that was such a cool little riff. Three, you know, three months or three years in jail, you pick. And I thought it was a great remember. mental hack. I totally agree, agree with you that she was like, she associated her mind more pain with not doing the process than pain with doing the processes. So yeah, I love that part. Um, so the question, another question uh, from the audience, is it true that businesses that monthly payment memberships businesses are valued higher than annual payment by business buyers? Interesting. Yeah. So in the case of, and this came, I think this question comes from Lisa B, right? Um, yes. Thanks for the question, Lisa. Uh, no, I don't think that's true. I think the more important valuation metric, in particular, when you're looking at recurring revenues, again, Jody had some recurring revenue, um, but it was uh, it was quite a little bit less uh, formalized, I think, if, if fair to say, than, than I've seen in other sort of software companies, et cetera. But if you're looking at your recurring revenue models and trying to ascertain which is more valuable, monthly or annual subscribers, really it comes down to your LTV to CAC ratio, your long-term lifetime value of a customer to the cost of acquiring customer. Here's the thing. You've really got to test it. it you know, Some people will tell you that an annual subscriber, because they pay a lot up front, do a better job of betting in. In other words, the onboarding process is improved. They start to adopt the software more carefully and it makes them more loyal. The more loyal your customer, the longer the lifetime value and you you improve your LTV to CAC ratio. The opposite though is also true. Every year it's a bit of a lumpy payment on the credit card and it can cause churn if they're not using the software. So it depends, I think, on what you offer, Lisa, and how well engaged your customers are. I would test both and look at the lifetime value uh, and its relationship to CAC. Of course, if you're going to charge annually up front, it's likely going to increase your CAC, right? Because people now have to make a, a much bigger decision, right? Because they're paying 12 months in advance. They're going to make uh, take a longer time to decide that. So it's natural that an annual subscription would have a higher CAC, but it may also come with a much longer lifetime value. So I think I think the answer is to test both cohorts, Lisa, and, and optimize for LTV to CAC. And there's more on that in the automatic customer uh if uh, or if you're in a value builder engagement, I think it's module seven is recurring revenue, and there's an actual LTV to CAC ratio that your certified value builder can uh, can walk you through, Lisa. Yeah, I love. Thanks for pointing out those advantages and disadvantages because I could totally see. Well, yeah, we want them for a year, but then year two, it's a bigger decision because it's it's a yeah. larger payment. So um, I wanted to again um, at each of the end of these, we'll we'll take questions. So ask any questions you want. We have. Uh, the next one, uh, John, was Dr. Kristen Kale, and she mm -hmm. helps businesses pick benefits programs for their employees. And she started three insurance agencies. The first two were service businesses that she sold for like one and a half to two times EBITDA. And then with a third one, she wanted a higher multiple, right? Who doesn't, I guess, right? So she decided to transform it into a technology company. So she built Navigate HCR up to more than 40 employees before she decided to sell. And she got three offers, ended up agreeing to be acquired for around eight times EBITDA plus a five-year contract that guarantees her employment, which is almost the opposite of Jody Cook, which was she's like, I'm out. So what <laughs> like, did you why find? Did you want the five-year contract again? <laughs> 
it was an interesting discussion. I love that part of the interview. So I encourage anyone, you can go back to built to sell.com slash radio and check out and watch all these in their entirety. But what did you like about uh, Dr. Kale's story? Well, I, I think it it was a beautiful before and after story. You know, those before and after, like before weight loss and after weight loss, or like before I fixed up my house and after I fixed up my house. It was a great before and after of the difference between uh, a service-based business that is deeply dependent on the people, which, as Dr. Kristen Kale found out, yet usually trade at very low multiples. And to your point in the introduction, she was, you know, she'd sold a couple of insurance agencies around one and a half to two times earnings. So fairly muted, fairly kind of, you know, average sort of offer. And then she made this transition. And the transition was to take, you know, all of the communication that is associated with a typical, like administering an employee benefits program, right? So under the Affordable Care Act in the United States, I know not all our listeners and guests today are in the United States, but in the United States, you've got to have these kind of standard communications that go to your employees, especially if you're a larger company. Uh, you've got a whole set of sort of compliance things that you've got. To, and she's like, this is all annoying for HR professionals to have to do. So why don't I just build software that basically pumps these emails out and eliminate some of the frustration and friction with administering an employee benefits program. So in the same sort of industry, same kind of ecosystem, but she figured out a way uh, to to make software. And again, took her multiple from kind of one and a half to two times earnings to, to eight times earnings. And, and uh, and a great story, uh, and again, just really driving home the difference. So in terms of the eight key drivers of value that we talk a lot about, um, you know, obviously she created recurring revenue, which is uh, one we've already spoken about a little bit today, uh, but, but a key ingredient. Um, she also did well in terms of growth potential. Growth potential is one of those other drivers where, you know, an acquirer looking at a business they're going to say, yeah, okay, great. But how, how quickly could we scale this? And if your business is people, people come with the default uh, or, or defect, I should say, that you can't grow them very quickly, right? It takes a while to recruit them, especially these days. You got to train them. That takes the time. And so it can take six months, a year before they're kind of functioning in your business. And therefore, people-dependent businesses don't scale well. They don't grow well. And so they generally score low on that driver we refer to as growth potential at Value Builder. So that is another thing that Kristen made this transition from scoring low on growth potential to scoring very high because once she had subscribers to this service, uh, you know, it, it was very easy for her to add subscribers without an incremental, a, a whole lot of extra cost. There's two big questions, John, I have, which is, which I found interesting that I wanted your take on, but what are, what have you seen or big mistakes people make when starting a software company? You know, it sounds sexy. Yeah. Like I want a software company, I want recurring revenue. And she made a big mistake early on. So she, I'd love yeah, to, she, so yeah, she I'd love to hear like, what you think. Yeah. Yeah. She referred to it as her, like her $300,000 mistake or uh, something to that effect. And, and, uh, you know, I think what she did was fall into the trap with a lot of new software companies, and and that was that that she wanted to create it all herself, right? Instead of, you know, there's lots. Part of what she built was a kind of a, a fancy 
LMS program, learning management system with a skin to it, if you will. And so instead of adopting one of the existing LMS platforms, the marketplace and reskinning it for her clients, she went out and, and, and created it from scratch and spent 300 grand on developers on a platform uh, that ultimately was a platform she had to abandon and effectively had to walk away from $300,000 worth of coding uh, because she picked the wrong platform. So long story short, uh, you know, creating software from scratch is, um, you know, if you have something that is truly, truly unique, clearly you have to do. But if, if not, if you can get away with sort of reskinning uh, an existing infrastructure, you're going to save yourself a whole truckload of money. I wonder if, the, if there are there any other mistakes that you've seen when you look at past interviewees that they made with their software company. And I love what you said there. Like, look at what's out there already. I remember when Groupon came out and there were other Groupon copycats and you could go online and search platform for Groupon. And you could literally have a whole platform if you wanted to launch your own Groupon. And I was like, holy cow, this is unbelievable. So there's, you just never know what's out there already that's been built. Are there any other from past experience or interviewees that you think big mistakes people made with software? Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things that you want to make sure you own is the customer data, right? So if you're going to, for example, license somebody else's software to use in the back end, you want to make sure that the customer is doing business with you and not you're not just reselling someone else's software. So their perception, the customer's perception, your customer's perception needs to be that they are buying from you and you're not just a middle man or woman selling someone else's stuff they, they have to believe that you are the arbiter of the relationship or the you know the, the glue that holds the relationship together so making sure that you own the contact information that's your sign-on platform that you, you i mean effectively what you want is a situation we call the switzerland structure but you're not dependent on a single supplier and that you can you can improve your score on the switzerland structure when your customer believes you to be the supplier not the company you are reselling for. And again, if you're just reselling or distributing someone else's product, they're going to draw the conclusion that, uh, you know, there's really very little value that you're bringing to the table. Whereas if the customer, your customer believes that they are buying from you and you will swap out whatever third party vendor you would to ensure that there's a best in class solution there, uh, that's the ultimate power position. So again, that, that's another element that uh, that you want to make sure if you're going to build out software that you, that the, your customer believes that you are their provider and not the the end you know platform in the background. I love John, you know, too, which is there was another part of the interview that I was looking forward to your you sharing, which is red flags, red flags to look out for when you are you know, vetting potential acquirers. There was a red flag that I, I thought was interesting that she had um, for a potential acquirer when they were asking for less information. So yeah, what, what, do you find, me, what do you find red flags um, for potential acquirers? Because she had looked at maybe, I don't know, 10 different, 10 different sites and they sent her, they wanted information from her. And she's like, the ones that wanted less information from her because I thought she was going to answer the opposite because you're like, you're, you asked, you're busy, you know, you don't have time. Did you just fill out the ones that she's like, no, I actually eliminated the ones that were less information. So I love to speak yeah. just about that, but then 
what you find that other people should look at with red flags when you're dealing with acquirers? Yeah, you know, I, I think you now I'm re- reminded of that portion of the interview. Yeah, I think she discounted the, the people who had fairly superficial diligence requests because she's like, how serious can you be in this company if you're you're asking such superficial questions? And I think there's something to that. Look, there's a there, there's a growing group of acquirers, a lot of private equity groups, and there's just a, a there's a whole sort of army of. I don't want to say shady characters, but they they are they are preying on the naivete of business owners right now, and basically their pitch is: look, we'll buy your company, and we don't actually really need to know a lot about it. And it's kind of like the old credit card guys who are like, hey, you're pre-approved for $10,000 loan. And you're like, how can you pre-approve me? I'm, like, <laughs> I'm in college. You're like, I have no income. And it's similar. There's these, a catch. These, these actors are saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to buy your business. When you get underneath the sheets of the offer, it's like, we're going to, you know, we're going to buy 60% of your company and we're going to use an SBA loan to do that. And oh, by the way, you're going to have to carry a note for the other 40%, meaning you're going to have to guarantee that, or you're going to have to actually keep your equity in the, in the, in the, in the game and roll it in the future. And when you learn who's making this offer, you realize they're actually not putting any or very little equity into the deal. They're again, the borrowing the money for the, the piece and then borrowing more from you. And they're just really kind of financial engineers. And because you're having to put so much of your wealth or your stake at stake, uh, there's very little sort of downside for them. And they know you're sort of tied to the business long-term. So look, I, and I don't mean to cast uh, disparaging comments around the entire private equity community, because I, I know there are good actors in there as well. But there, there is this sort of rising group of folks who are a little more than financial engineers manipulating numbers on a spreadsheet and happen to be good at you know borrowing money from banks and happen to be good at sort of the 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 mechanics of buying a company not necessarily the operating of a company and i and i think those folks uh uh Tend to be, you have to be careful with with folks making those sorts of offers, and so I think in in the case of Dr. Kale, she kind of sniffed those out, and 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 if they weren't really really asking deep penetrating questions about her business, it's kind of a turnoff for her. Uh, John, a question from the audience. Um, mm. This question is: How do you recommend people tell their team that they're selling, or do you tell them at all? And, and I don't know if this stems from when she. Um, she had to have a hard conversation with one of her team members after the sale and let, I think, let that team member go. But um, the question is, how do you recommend people tell their team while yeah, they're selling or if at all? This came up uh, again uh, on, on an episode. It, it actually, I had a great conversation with the person. We were talking about, the, you know, all the work they'd done to build their business so that it wasn't dependent on them. I'm not going to share the name of the person because she told me in confidence after the fact. And anyway, she built this business up and, and she had sort of a general manager and who was doing most of the work. And so she got an offer. It was a very good offer. And she actually chose to share some of that with her, her second in command, but her second in command felt that it was not enough that she had been doing so much of the work and that, you know, Anyways, long story short, it ended up being a very tumultuous ending to what was a really good relationship 
you know, for many years. And I think it's one of those situations where employees oftentimes get mixed up between the difference between being an employee and being an owner. And an owner, and I, and I think it's important for owners to remember this as well, the owner wears most of the time two hats, right? They're wearing their hat as an owner of the business, the shareholder of the business, and they need to make decisions in that, in that context. But in many cases, they're also playing the role of CEO of a company, right? And, and I, again, I know we think of those as the same most of the time for small, medium-sized businesses, but actually those are two different roles with two different responsibilities, right? So your responsibility as a shareholder is to maximize the value of that shareholding, right? And your responsibility as the CEO may be to operate the business, uh, to grow its revenue, to grow its profit, et cetera, serve customers, et cetera. And while those two things are related, they're not always identical. And so uh, I, I think Dr. Kale ran into some of the same situation when she went to exit um, that, that, that perhaps there was a little bit of confusion around like, what's my role as the, as the founder, as a shareholder? And then, you know, how is that different than the operator, president, whatever of the company? We'll get to, thank you for that. We'll get to um, talking about Carrie Moretti, but um, another question uh, was, is what is your take when a buyer sends an LOI without having a conversation with the seller? How do you deal with that? Run far away, fast. <laughs> you know, look, I think there's a difference between an LOI and, and an L. Uh, uh, indication of interest versus a letter of intent. An IOI, indication of interest, is a much more, less formal document, right? And I think it's reasonable that you might receive an IOI uh, without necessarily meeting with the acquirer. So an IOI would be like two pages, one page, two pages, and they would, at a fairly high superficial level say, look, I think what you're doing is amazing. Uh, I think our companies could fit really well together. We bought companies like yours in the past and we generally buy them for X to Y multiple. Um, we would love you to stay on and help us, uh, you know, achieve uh, great things together. Let me know if you're interested. So they kind of throw out a number of like a multiple of X to Y. It's usually a range. It very rarely would be a number, like an actual number. It's usually a range. And it's sort of a shot across the bow. I think that's totally legit for uh, a company to do and and for you to react to. I don't think that's a that's a, that's that's fine. I think I think I would engage with them if you felt like that was an interesting offer. If someone's actually selling you a formal letter of intent, which would be different, it would it would have a, a, a usually a specific price uh, associated with the acquisition offer. There would be terms on how you know what what currency, whether stock or 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 share you know uh, cash burnout, contingency, like all that, like escrow, like it would be a much more formal document. Also usually would include a, a schedule for due diligence, not always, but oftentimes. So like it looks very different than an IOI. It's usually multiple pages long. It's much more formal. If you're getting one of those without ever having met an acquirer, like again, I would, I would be very concerned that that's, that's a PE company just trolling for, for, uh, for deals. So next interview, way, uh, yeah, go ahead. Jeremy, before we go into the next interview, I just want to punctuate that point. If it is a private equity company just trolling for deals in your industry, 
that's fine. Know that there's probably 10 other private equity companies trolling for deals in your industry as well. And what you should do is create competitive tension. You should go to all of the private equity companies that are looking to buy businesses in your industry and play one off the other. Don't get lured into signing an LOI with one PE company that's just basically trolling for uh, for deal flow. It's uh, you know you're 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 going to find yourself in a corner. Um, I want to talk about Carrie Moretti, and I, there's uh, yeah. put your questions in the chat. I know there's a few. We'll, we'll cover it right at the end when John's thoughts on Carrie Moretti. So keep putting them in there. I see them. Um, so Carrie Moretti, this was interesting, John, because almost opposite of Dr. Kale, she's like, I have a five-year plan. I want to sell in five years. You're like, why five years? She's like, I don't know. I just want to sell in five years. Now, Carrie is almost the opposite. He was not even thinking of selling. And what's interesting about him is, even as people approached him, he didn't realize that's what they were approaching him about, right? He's like, you know, it was almost like a, a guy, you know, a girl sending signals and you just totally are not, are missing this thing. Oh, she likes me? Oh, okay. So Carrie Moretti, for anyone who didn't listen, is the founder of New Sport Media and is an IT consulting company that does work with sports leagues. And along the way, he created a software application called League Stat. And um, like a like a true Canadian was all about the hockey. So the app helped hockey leagues like the age. I'm I'm stereotyping uh, John for a second. No, <laughs> you're fine, the, you're fine. the HL and CHL provides fans, journalists, parents, scouts with real time statistics on their favorite teams. It grew to 27 employees. Um, he was a bit conflicted because he had a professional side um, of the business, uh, which required a different model in the software app that he built. Um, but he knew that if LeagueStat were to reach its potential, he would need more of an investor to help run that business, invest in that business. So he carved out LeagueStat out of New Sport Media. So I would love to hear about some of the things you liked about Kerry's uh, story. Well, first of all, it's just his like gumption and his entrepreneurial, you know, up by the bootstraps mentality. I mean, he was he is in his own admission, he, you know, he's not an MBA. He didn't have a business plan. I mean, he just he just he was building websites, uh, you know, on, a, on an hourly basis and noticed that these some of the schools and some of the, the teams that he was working with uh, had this kind of need for for updating their stat, their fans with their stats. And he's like, well, we could do that and we could probably even do it in real time. And I mean, it was just, again, I loved his just unadulterated like entrepreneurship and, and, and a sort of raw like grit and love that. I think one of the things, the big lessons for, for me and when it comes to the sort of eight drivers is, you know, when an acquirer looks at a business, uh, they want, they don't want a hodgepodge uh, kind of Neapolitan business where you as the owner want to be, uh, you know, paid for your entire business, but they may only want a portion of your business. It's like, I, you know, I use this analogy from time to time about buying cable TV, right? Like we're, we've just come through a point where, you know, you were getting charged like hundred, $150, $200 a month for like 300 channels you never watch, right? <laughs> like, I don't know about you, but I, you know, maybe ESPN, like, you know, but that's like kind of it, and I'm getting charged all this. That's money why. For... That's why I switched to YouTube TV because it's less. Well, and that's I, right. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and you're not alone. A lot of a lot of consumers of television have said, "Well, screw this. I, you know, I want Disney. I want Netflix. I want Crave. Whatever. I don't need cable. I mean, that's 
that's what a consumers acquiring television services are doing in droves, right? In the same way, acquirers do the same thing, right? They're like, okay, if this business does all kinds of things, in the case of Kerry Moretti, he offered this nice little app uh, called LeagueStat, which allowed you to measure, you know, a report for your fans, the uh, the outcome of games. And then he had all this, all these employees also running this professional services division of what he did, I, you know, managing people's websites and website hosting and so forth. And I think at one time he had 27 employees, six of which were focused on league stat, 21 of which were focused on the professional services. And so, you know, it's an example of being sort of half pregnant in, in the sense that, you know, league stat is a, is a, is a, a software application. It's got subscribers. It's got recurring revenue. It's got growth potential. Like it's got, it ticks all the value builder boxes, right? And then you've got this other kind of appendage where there's 20 people. It's kludgy. Every client is different. There's no way to grow. Like you got to hire people when he's like, and, and so when the acquirer, I can just see looked, you as a surgeon, John, coming and just slicing off the appendage <laughs> like, <laughs> scalpel please <laughs> that's exactly what the acquirer did right and they and they just kind of drew it like they 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 uh uh they they basically carved it up and they said okay we you know we would like to buy your business carrie but we we don't want it all we certainly don't want the professional services we're going to have this leak stat and again in many cases, and I've heard this many times, oftentimes the part of the business that cash flows well is the professional services. The part of the business that is also the biggest headache is the professional services. And it's where another way, another uh, you know, example of where chasing revenue is not always the best thing for the value of your company, because we grow up in entrepreneurship thinking that you know the the bigger the company the better and i think that would be the case in Kerry's case where he you know he he saw opportunities and he just kept taking advantage of them kept selling more and more things when he went to sell the business they're like eh, i don't like i don't want all this other stuff i want league stat and if he'd focused all of his energy resources capital on league stat you might make the case that there was a bigger business there that he could have created, uh, but he was sort of trying to keep both it, you know, both businesses going. And in the end, acquirers found value in in a small part of the business, but not all of it. And I think that's very common. I thought it was an interesting creative solution that how he came up with kind of having the two arms, professional service and SaaS. I'm curious, what do you think? Because, you know, he would charge separately. He's like, well, if you this is this is what you get. If you want other features, we'll charge you separately. What do you think about how could he have maybe um, released those features to everyone and increase the price across the board? Do you think there was an opportunity for him to choose the, you know, like with any software company, they just choose the features they make a choice to either invest in doing the features or not, and they release them across everyone. And that may be they're making the the SaaS company more valuable. He didn't decide to do that, but do you think there was an opportunity to possibly just choose the feature requests that were the best and increase the price? Or do you like how he kind of creatively solved that problem? Yeah, I, th I think I might take it up a level in terms of thinking about it. Answer to your question and 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 answer it by saying, 
you know, there are some business owners who subscribe to the ethos that the customer is always right, that you've got to constantly be listening to your customer, evolving your solution based on customer needs. And I think I'm, if I can characterize the, those individuals as maybe reactive business owners, they're kind of bootstrappy business owners. They're kind of they're kind of forging their way in the dark, you know, the fog of war, and they're and they're just they're hearing and reacting, hearing and reacting, hearing and reacting. And I think that's one way to to bootstrap a business. And I think there's just lots of examples of success on that front. I think the other sort of type of business owner is is a lot more proactive. I, I hate to use Steve Jobs because he's such an overused example, but you know he's the guy who said, you know, I, uh, uh, you know if you asked uh, you know, consumers, do they want a thousand songs in their pocket? None of them would say yes, right? But when he gave them the iPod, they realized how much they valued having so much programming in their pocket at once. And so he was ahead of them in that regard. And so, I, you know, I think there's value in really being proactive and saying, who is the target customer we want to serve? So in Kerry's case, he was doing a lot of work with hockey teams. Great. So, if you focus and say, okay, we're going to build the world's best app for hockey teams and hockey leagues, then I think the decisions around what features to launch, what customizations to make start to really become obvious, right? Whereas if you're kind of bobbing and weaving and saying hockey teams like it today and lacrosse teams like it tomorrow, and maybe we'll do soccer and, oh, I've got an opportunity to do uh, swimming or, you know, like whatever. That's what I think you run into these problems of like starting to build out without a lot of forethought. So I, I think, I think, Carrie might have been better served by really focusing in on, okay, like who is the ideal customer? What am I passionate about doing? And, and really building out a feature set for those as opposed to being quite as reactive to his or her, his clients needs. Uh, and again, that's kind of the opposite advice a lot of business owners get, right? Which is like, Hey, you got to listen to your customers and react to your customers and focus on customer retention. Yes. It's a balance. Yeah. It's a balance. You have to lead them. I love what you said there, Jen, about like a North Star question that can lead decisions, you know, like if he was asking that question about how can I be the best hockey or, you know, he may make different decisions in what he does. Um, so I'm going to take some questions from the audience. And one is one of the questions you asked during the interview to him, which I loved, um, actually. So I love this question. This person asks is, what would you do differently? So the question is... What are some of the most common things you have found that people would do differently after the fact when they look back mm. on the deal? I think one of the most common things I hear is I wish I'd taken more time. Uh, in the case of Kerry, he, I think he might answer the same way. He sold Leakstat but didn't sell the other part of his business. So kind of jumped from the frying pan to the fire, so to speak. So went right back to, you know, he had this, this amazing event and, and rather than punctuating it with uh, a big trip or buying something to, as a commemorate, you know, to commemorate it, he just kind of went back the next day and started another company. And so I, I think selling a company is one of those, you know, it, it's life changing and it's also shocking and it can be quite um, jarring. Right. And, and again, I hear all time, you know, all kinds of times, uh, you know, sometimes after a hit, 
stop on the record button, I'll hear people reveal, yeah, it's been a tough few months, a few years, you know, like I, I feel like I'm kind of drifting a little bit. And so, look, we talk a lot about something called pre-score, which is a measurement of how ready you are to exit. And a lot of the folks on, on this call probably have got their pre-score. You go to prescore.com if you haven't already. But it basically measures your personal readiness to, 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 to exit your company. And part of that is having a really clear vision of what you want to go do next. I think one thing I would just caution people though is is to for sure really crystallize what you want to go do next. But make sure you punctuate the sale of your business. Like put an exclamation point on it. Uh, you know, take a trip, take some time off. It's an emotional journey, right? Um, buy something, and it doesn't have to be a Ferrari. Uh, you know, I, I heard one a woman I interviewed recently. She bought herself a, a Rolex watch. It was one that she, for her, it had all kinds of meaning to it, right? And you can say, well, why do you want to buy a ten thousand dollar watch? That's crazy, pissing away your money. For her, <laughs> it wasn't. It was a it was a physical, tangible memory of this huge achievement in her life, right? And again, I, I'm not advocating you go spend a bunch of money on something you don't need, but I think there is. Is some magic in having, first of all, a period of, of puncture to punctuate the, the success, some sort of trophy or you know commemorative item that you can touch and feel and remember, and then some things that you want you're excited to go do next uh, once you've had a period to sort of decompress. Uh, that's great. Next question. And that makes me think like, what trophy, if people are out there listening, what trophy do you want? Maybe you proactively think of, well, when I sell, this is the trophy I'm going to get myself, you know? Remember um, what trophy I hear on Built Cell Radio is a Tesla. It's Tesla, it's really? Almost, it's so okay. funny. It's like, like, oh yeah, I bought a kind of fancy car. I'm like, well, what would you buy? Like almost always it's a Tesla. <laughs> yeah. The next question then was how do how best to include a second in command who's basically running the company when a sale and liquidity event occurs. Yeah, I mean, depends on how you've got it structured so far. So if you've given him or your second in command options, uh, stock options, then they will they will presumably benefit from the sale. If presumably if if you're if they're in the money and the the stock has gone up, or the value of the company has gone up since they were issued, that's one. I, I think if you have not yet created stock options, I don't think you have to go to that extent because stock options it just it it, it it's an expensive, it can be time consuming. Uh, and can and can just be overly complex. Another way to do it is is just simply do a stay bonus uh, for that individual. So look, um, you know, we're, we decided to sell the company, and you're an integral part to the success of the transition. So, uh, you know, we're going to give you. I'll just I'll throw I'll pull a number right out of the thin air. We're going to give you a million dollars, and and we're going to pay that in three installments. So you get. Uh, you'll get uh, 300 grand when deal closes, uh, another uh, three and change one year after the closes, provided you still are working, and then another 300 five years later. So you're you're compensating them for bringing you to the dance, but you're also leaving enough on the table that they have some incentive to stay and help you through the transition. Um, I think. You know, be careful giving too much up front because, of course, for some people, you know, if you give them uh, 10 grand uh, at the close of the business, that's like more money than they've had in ages and they'll leave or their motivation may drop. So I would just try to back end load as much as you can. Um, 
have the conversation uh, around the roles. But look, I, I think no matter what you do, there will be some resentment. I think, you know, in the case of the, the resentment I referenced earlier, like this woman had, you know, gone without a salary during the lean years around the, the, the global financial crisis. There were periods of, of really you know, difficult times where she invested the business, the 2IC never saw any of that, right? And the 2IC certainly didn't remember any of that when it came to like, what's my take? But people forget that like, it takes an enormous sacrifice to start a business. There is, uh, you know, a lot of groveling for customers. There's a lot of sacrifices. So when it's going well and you're making money and you've, you've got enough money to bring in a second in command, it can be easy for that person, your second in command to forget or not even be aware of the deep struggles and sacrifices you've made. So I would expect it, frankly, a little bit of resentment. And if you get away without it, great. But, uh, but, but, but uh, putting tranches of stay bonuses in place over time periods can help. Love that. Thanks, John. That's super valuable. Uh, I'm sure that question comes up a lot. The next uh, interview, Nick Huber. Nick Huber was a track star at Cornell. Uh, he got a call from a parent that uh, obviously propelled him to the business and a student needed to store their stuff over the summer. He was, uh, you know, basically Huber was offered money to pick up this person's stuff, keep it until the fall. He realized there is a need for this. Those are students out there. So storage squad, was, storage squad was born and his partner, Dan Hagberg, um, they built it into 30 locations, were in $2 million in sales. They decided to sell for a low seven figures um, while avoiding an earnout. And so I'd love to hear some of what you liked about Nick's story. So much to like here. And, and by the way, if you, if you don't follow Nick on Twitter, he's a prolific Twitter user. Uh, so his, his, his uh, handle is Sweaty Startup, I think. Nick Huber, or Sweaty Startup, something. Uh, I think his Sweaty Startup will get you there. But a great follow. Uh, so lots to like about Nick's story. Again, very up by the bootstraps, uh, you know, to your point, Jeremy, like, you know, someone asked him to store some stuff and he had the entrepreneurial gumption to say, hey, there's a business idea here and built it up to uh, to 30 different locations. Um, I think one of the big takeaways for me, and I think Nick as well, and I and he he admitted as much on the episode and 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 described it with great transparency. That is that in the early days, he thought everybody was like him, right? And I think this is one of the biggest mistakes we make as young entrepreneurs. We young entrepreneurs make, I made as a young entrepreneur in the old days, and I still see new entrepreneurs making today. And that is thinking that employees are just like you, right? So if you're an entrepreneur, you probably are willing to take risk. You're probably okay with ambiguity. You probably don't mind some uncertainty and you want to be rewarded directly for the contribution you make. So you're okay deferring a bit of you know, reward up front for a larger reward down the road. Those are all very kind of hallmark sort of traits of entrepreneurs. And they're not the same traits that most employees have. And what Nick was doing in the early days was he was going onto different campuses and saying, hey, we've got this cool thing called Storage Squad. You can make some money. And here's all this entrepreneurial ways you can run the company. And so he was asking his drivers, the people that were storing the stuff to, you know, win new business and schedule, you know, shipments and, and, and like wash the truck, like do all the stuff that he would do as an owner, as a founder, right? As 
was an up by the bootstraps kind of entrepreneurial guy. And what he realized is that most employees, they want a paycheck. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they want to be told, like, these are the three things that you do. And if you do those things, I'm going to pay you $10 an hour. Like, that's what most college kids and students that's how much they can handle, right? And so what he did was, he, I think in the early days, he trained these, these drivers up and they had like a 25 things they needed to do every day, like a checklist of 25 things. And Nick eventually basically scrubbed all that off their list, right? He hired a call center person to do the scheduling. He hired somebody else to manage the inventory of the fleet. And, you know, he hired head office people. And then he said to his drivers, these kids he was getting from university, look, there are four things you need to do. And, and I've actually put them on the back of this iPad. You know, so you don't, you're not going to forget the four things like pick up the customer's sofas and, you know, you know, like take it to the storage locker, call this number when you're done. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm dumbing it down way, way, way more. Than it was about accurate. That's point, about accurate. You're not even dumbing it down. It was about that. It was take the stuff, it put it away safely and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the point is, I think we make the mistake of assuming employees are motivated in the same way we are as entrepreneurs. I think the opposite is true. I think given uh, given the choice, employees want to have standard operating procedures. They don't like flying by the seat of their pants, right? Like they want to be told, like, here's the here are the here's the way you should do this, right? They want SOPs. They want regularity. They don't want ambiguity. And I think, again, we as entrepreneurs are totally differently wired and acknowledging that up front is important. And Nick did a great job of, of, of pivoting. What did you think, uh, John, I'm, it, when you look back at the interviewees in your experience, what risks have you seen people take um, that have maybe worked out and maybe some that haven't worked out based off of, you know, when Nick talked, he said, we shipped 10,000 boxes to Ithaca during COVID because I saw an opportunity, it took a risk, and it ended up working out for him. But I'm sure there's ones that don't work out and there's others that do. So what did you think about his calculated risk there? And then if there's any other examples that you think would be interesting to bring up around people taking risks? Yeah, I mean, I think the smartest entrepreneurs always minimize their downside, right? So in the case of Nick doing the, you know, the, the you know, reacting in the COVID situation, like his business was basically gone if he didn't do that, right? Like there were no students on campus in March of 2020. There was, you know, like there was nothing for him to do. And so, so he took a bold move, but had he not done that, I think, so he, there wasn't a lot of downside risk. And I think, you know, those famous examples of Richard Branson, when he started Virgin, you know, he didn't buy the plane, he leased the plane and he had the rights to give it back after three months. I mean, that's, that's an old example, uh, but it's an example uh, where even Richard Branson, the most prolific, one of the most prolific entrepreneurs of all time, he's not taking bold, high risk decisions. He's, he's, he's minimizing his downside. He's carefully, you know, curating the risk and ensuring that if he takes it, his downside is limited. I mean, even stuff like, you know, if you're going to build out a product, um, like make sure that your company could use the product because if you can't Worst case scenario. It, it, yeah. Yeah. You know, Jason Freed, the guy from, from Basecamp, 
when he built Basecamp, the project management software, it was really to scratch the own itch, his own itch, which was at the time he was running a, a web development agency. They didn't have great project management software. So at the very least, if all if he hadn't sold a single license of Basecamp, he had a great product that they could use internally. And I, that's another example of like kind of managing your downside. Yeah, is it, is it going to be expensive? Sure. But at least he had that as an outcome. Richard Branson leased the plane, still got to pay the lease payments, still three months of massive fees, but at least he could give the plane back. In the case of Nick, he wasn't risking a lot because his business was so disrupted by COVID. Uh, Questions from the audience. Um, Phantom equity was mentioned. Can you go over best ways to execute on that? Yeah, I can't really because I'm not a lawyer. I don't know where I don't know where you live. <laughs> I, I think, and I don't mean to dodge the question or or, or belittle the question because I think it's a great one. Uh, I think I would engage a lawyer to do it properly uh, because again, depending on where you live, you, you don't want to get into situations where you're making legal commitments that you might end up regretting. I think the the thing with phantom equity is that it's it's really in most cases kind of veiled income, taxable income for employees, and therefore it's treated as as income, right? Whereas equity, real equity, uh, can often be treated as capital gains on the exit of a company. So it has a a tax preference. And again, I don't wanna get too far into legal advice because it's way beyond my pay grade. I'm not a lawyer, Uh, but I do think it's important to engage one in creating these employee incentive programs because they're too important and, and they, they drive to the heart of your relationship with your employees. And if, if, if it's not done well, I think it can undermine your relationship with your employees mm-hmm. even beyond just, which, which undermines the whole reason you're doing it. I'm, I'm assuming you're doing it because you want to retain your employees. You want to reward them effectively. You want to align them with you. So I think it's worth spending the extra bucks to get a good lawyer to do it properly. Jeremy, you're nodding. It sounds like you've had some experience in that. Area. No, I, I'm just, I love, you kind of hit the underlying piece, which I think the heart of the question is more, impl- how do you incentivize employees better? So are there other, you know, what are the ways that you've found that are really good for empl- like employee incentive programs? Because I think you hit the heart of the matter, which is, it's, I don't know if it's necessarily about equity or fandom equity. It doesn't matter what it is. It's more about how do you best retain your staff, right? Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not a, this is not my area of expertise, to be honest with you, Jeremy. So I don't want to speak too far to the turn. I mean, I think right now, uh, being flexible is is proving to be a pretty big premium. So here we are recording this. COVID's raging again in the southern part of the United States. And I think telling your employees you have to come back to work, uh, you know, is problematic for some people because for many people, they've changed their lives fundamentally, right? They've, they've, they've gone to work from home and they've changed their childcare situation so that they can't all of a sudden just go back to the office, right? Or they can't, you know, they sold one of their cars so they can't commute back to the office because they, they, they made life-changing decisions that now all of a sudden to rock up and say, okay, everybody back to work, I think is going to create a lot of turmoil. And, and so I know that finding employees right now is really difficult, Keeping employees is more essential than ever. I think flexibility, in particular, if you think about your yourself as an entrepreneurial company, that's like your killer app, right? If you're United Airlines or you're Ford, 
you don't have the luxury of being flexible when it comes to employees. You've got to have like a standard. Put on the tire at home. Yeah, exactly. Like everybody gets $216 to buy an office chair and everybody flies coach. And if you're 3.6 hours and you're at this level, you can fly business. I can think all these friggin' rules are there because you've got 60,000 employees, right? Whereas if you've got 12 employees, you can you have the luxury of being a little bit flexible. Hey, you know, I know your childcare situation is different, so you can work from home. I, you know, I'd rather these people over here because they're young and single don't work from home. And like you can be that flexible person. And I think as long as you can get away with that, in particular these days, I think that's going to serve you well. I love that. Next question, John, is in a multiple LOI situation, um, let's just see says which are all favorable. Do you take them all and see which one will eventually close and not provide exclusivity or pick one that's asking for a 90 day exclusivity with the same price slash terms. You negotiate your terms before you sign your your uh, your exclusivity. So once you sign your exclusivity, no shop clause, the, the pendulum of power in that relationship swings heavily. Right now, you're in the driver's seat. You've got congratulations, by the way. You've got multiple offers. That's a fantastic outcome. Uh, you must have a great business, and you've 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 hit the you know the the lottery. You're, you're amazing. Great work. Right now, you're in the driver's seat. You are the prettiest girl at the dance. You have power, and you will lose that power the moment you sign the no shop clause. And a lot of people think, oh, no, I'll be able to maintain the power. I can always walk away. Here's the problem. Once you sign a no shop clause, and a no shop clause basically in the letter of intent, for those of you who don't know, is effectively when you agree not to continue to negotiate with the other parties, and you you agree to get engaged effectively and be monogamous in your relationship and, 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 and come to a... Once you sign that, you lose all your leverage and the acquirer knows that and they will then drag out due diligence over a period of time. They may retrade, which is lowering the price. And if you walk away, what do you think the other guys that are have given you the LOI are going to think? Are they going to think your company is fantastic? They just broke up? Uh, for no reason? No, they're going to think that the acquirer found something in due diligence that they didn't like, and therefore the deal blew up. So you're going to go back and say, hey, remember remember us? You gave us the LOI. It didn't really work out with the other guys, but are you still interested? They're going to go, hmm, maybe. But their hackles are going to be up and their radar is going to be up and they're going to be like, okay, what did they find that's (laughs) not favorable? So it's 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 not like you can just close out negotiations with the, the, the folks that you signed the letter of intent on with the no shop clause, and then all of a sudden go back to the other guys. You go back a much much less valuable company than you did before. So do not sign the letter of intent, uh, the no shop clause, and the letter of intent until you have absolutely negotiated the very best deal you can. And there's some, you know, there's, there's a huge art form to that, right? Because if you overplay your hand and you say, okay, I've got five offers, you guys, you know, bid it out, you know, you're going to come off as a dick and that's going to be a problem. Some people walk and say, I'm not participating in an auction. I'm not going to, that's just not like we've made a fair offer. We're not going to, play some some game. And so there's this is why mergers and acquisitions professionals 
this is how they earn their keep. This is why they're worth engaging. This is why you need one is because they know how to nudge an acquirer while not rubbing it in their face that in order to win your business, they may need to increase their offer a little bit. And at the same time, they're, they're not losing those, those deals because they're overplaying their hand. I'm reminded of Arik Levy, not one of the four we've talked about today, uh, Jeremy, but Arik Levy uh, sold Luxor One. He had a bad experience selling his first business where he did it on his own and they retraded and it was just a terrible situation. But he went out and re uh, he went out and sold a new business, Luxor One, and, and had an M&A professional do it properly. The M&A professional got five initial letters of intent all five were kind of plus or minus uh, 10%. And he started to play one off the other. When I say he, not Arik, but his M&A advisor, a guy named Trip Wolf. Trip Wolf played one offer off the next. Over that sort of uh, negotiating period, before Arik signed the letter of intent, he was able to get the offers up by 300%. In other words, three times more. And that's what is possible, not not common, but possible when you've got the situation you're in, multiple offers, and and you have not yet signed a letter of intent. So a uh, long, long, long-winded way of saying don't sign the LOI until you play one off the other and get the very best deal you can. First of all, John, thank you. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of leave it to the experts. You know, you do what you yeah. do best. Let the experts do what they do best. And I want to encourage everyone to go to builttosell.com and, you know, sign up. I think when you sign up for the email list, John, correct me if I'm wrong, they will get an email to come to each and every month's webinar where they can ask their specific questions. So yeah. register for the email list, come to the webinar and ask questions so John can ask them. And I also encourage people to go to builttocell.com slash radio and check out all the episodes they have. They are uh, really um, gems. So uh, thank you, John, for having we also, me. We all, yeah, there, we um, also talked a lot about standard operating procedures today. So if folks want more on SOPs, Jody Cook built standard operating procedures, Nick Huber built standard operating procedures. We've built, uh, we've written a, a kind of an ebook. Uh, so everything you need to know about writing SOPs, just go to builttosell.com slash SOP and you can download it. It's free. It's an ebook. So I hope it helps. Jeremy, this was fun. Let's do it again in a month. Let's do it. It's on the schedule. Thanks everybody for joining. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com.
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.